A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Gabriel with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another episode, this is part three of our ongoing series entitled World War I and the Jews. And in last episode, in part two, we left off somewhat in the middle of a topic um, about the yeshivas, the Litvishi yeshivas of, of uh, Lithuania, of Poland. Uh, being forced, many of them, not all of them, to go into exile at different stages during World War One, and how they sustained themselves in exile. He's kind of touched on it, and I want to expand on it a little bit in this episode and hopefully move on also to the maybe the next couple of topics. So we have um, a situation where... There are yeshivas, like I mentioned, that don't go into exile, but for the most part, most of them do. Most of them are forced to take to hit the road, um, not all at the same time. Slabatka, both yeshivas in Slabatka go fairly early. There are two main yeshivas in Slabatka at the time. There's uh, the altar of Slabatka. Knesset Finkel has a muster yeshiva in Slabatka called Knesset Yisrael. And there's another yeshiva, what the, what the Musser yeshiva called the other yeshiva, <laughs> of, of, uh, called Knesses Beis Yitzchak, and the Rosh Yeshiva, that yeshiva was Rebarch Ber Leibovich. And they both uh, end up uh, first in Minsk, which I also mentioned last time, and they at some point make it down to both of them, interestingly enough, they both end up in the same place at different times, um, down into the Ukraine, deep into the Ukraine, to Kremenchuk. You have to look at a map. You're talking about it's it's like uh, the eastern Ukraine. It's at the edges, edge, edge, edge of the Pale of Settlement, and it's way south. So talking about they really traveled hundreds of miles out of the way to get far away from the front. Interestingly enough, Rabarch Ber. His father-in-law was the rabbi in Kremenchuk, and eventually, I think his father-in-law got sick or died or something of the sort, and Barchber becomes the rabbi of the town, um, of the city. It's really quite a large city, actually. Um, and then that, that, that's a 
you know, combination of, of jobs that he has uh, during World War I, ironically. Um, many Litvish Jews had been, got, got into the Russian interior at this time. I mentioned last time that Rabbi Chaim Meiser-Grajensky was out there being busy with all types of uh, activities of helping refugees, feeding people, soldiers in the Russian army, and of course the yeshivas. And to fund yeshivas out here in exile was no simple affair either. The Mir yeshiva, in the meantime, left at a later stage. They were able to stay in Mir for the first part of the war, but eventually the war catches up with them. They also make it to Minsk, and they're in Minsk for a period of time. Minsk becomes a gathering place. Minsk was a large city. It's the capital of Belarus till today. And it becomes the gathering place for a lot of these yeshivas, for loads of refugees. There's a lot of self-help organizations that spring up by the noble Jews of Minsk who are willing to help out the many refugees streaming into the city. And the Mir is no exception to that. Now, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir, Rebellion Baruch Kamai, was also the rabbi of the town of Mir. And he tried to stay with the town, with the community. Eventually he gets sick. He ends up in Minsk and he actually dies during the war. By that time he, and, and I believe he died in Minsk itself, um, and by the time that happens, the Mir Yeshiva had already continued south also into the Ukraine. They end up in another town, city also, it's a large city called Poltava. And they are in the eastern Ukraine, um, as well. So the, and by then, you know, Rebellion Baruch Kamai had at the first point tried to stay with the community of the Mir, later up and later on ends up in Minsk and, um, dies there. So his son-in-law, Rebellion Yudel Finkel, who had already been taking a large, uh, position in the yeshiva even before World War One, now assumes full control over the yeshiva. Interesting that a, a uh, work colleague of mine um, works in an archive uh, and uh, does research in, of Jewish history uh, through archive digging. So he discovered recently a, a stamp that the Rebbe Finkel used when he first became Rosh Yeshiva, and he writes, and the stamp says that he is the son-in-law of Rebellion Baruch Kamai. Rebbe Finkel had to come on to the yichus of his father-in-law in his initial uh, position as the Rashiva, as that would uh, that that's what uh, it made him the Rashiva of the Mir at that point, which is also an interesting tidbit. But in any event, the the yeshivas are out in exile. How big were the yeshivas in exile? So the the the, the, fir- the, the first question is is that the, these yeshivas last in exile. So the answer is that most of them fall apart. Uh, world War I is really the destruction of the yeshiva world. The ones who were able to survive barely survived. Most of them fell apart entirely. We talk about a few examples. The uh, Shimon Shkops yeshiva of, of Brinsk. Originally it was in Malch. He moved to Brinsk. He reopened it there. The yeshiva fell apart when World War I. We know that people like Rav Shach left Slabotka when the when the war broke out, and that's what happened to that's what most guys did. Most guys did not go into exile with their yeshiva. The Mir Yeshiva, which had been a few hundred boys at the beginning of World War One, when they're in down in Poltava, they're forty, fifty 
boys, the whole yeshiva, Bacharim, the, the Talmidim of the yeshiva. That's it. They're, they're small. Most had gone. Most either went home. Some were drafted into the army. Some were running away from the draft and were in some sort of hiding or go on the road, on the run. Many yeshiva guys are drafted. Then Rabbi Moshe Feinstein used to relate a story about how he was almost drafted and he spent a good chunk of World War I Ramesha was a was a, a single bacher at the time, and he had first learned in Slutsk, and then he was in Kobrin by Rav Pesach Kobrin, uh, Rav Pesach Pruskin, I'm sorry, of of Kobrin, and and Ramesha was trying to avoid the draft, and he said two two stories about his period of time avoiding the draft. Number one, he got his first position of rabbi because if he was an official community rabbi, they would not draft him. So as a twenty 21, maybe 22, around that time, very young age, as a single bacher, he was not married yet, Ramesha Feinstein becomes a rabbi in the same area where his father was a rabbi, in the Minsk district, it was a few towns near each other, Uzda, Luban, and Strobin, where he and his father were rabbis at different periods of time, and that's where he gets his first rabbinical position, he was Paskening Shilohs already in Halacha at that time, he wrote Chuvas, and uh, that's that's Ramesha. So so he did it, but he initially took the position. There was a local woman actually who would cook him meals, and and uh, that's how he that's how he lived. He didn't have a wife yet to cook him meals, and he he was he was the rabbi of the town as a way to get out of the Russian army. Um, he also mentioned how he how he got a bracha from the Chavetz Chaim was the only time he met the Chavetz Chaim and he went to get a bracha from him and this reinforces the collective memory that the Jewish people have of the Chavetz Chaim is that he was almost the almost like the Lit- Litvish version of a Hasidic Rebbe that people would actually go to him to receive brachas uh, like uh, like 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 Jews the Hasidim did in Poland and, and Ukraine and Hungary so the Litvaks even Litvaks like Ramesha went to a Litvish rabbi like the Chavetz Chaim to get a bracha to get out of the army. That was also, he used to relate that story on Purim. When he was in a good mood, he would tell the story of his meeting the Chavetz Chaim. But he was lucky, he got out. Other other yeshiva guys did not get out. The stipler served in the Russian army. Rabbi Shleim Haiman, the future Rosh Hashiva in Taravadas, serves in the Russian army. And he, uh, um, he supposedly finished the whole ksubis in the trenches while he was in the uh, Russian army at that time. So yeshivas are falling apart for many reasons. And here another couple of examples. The yeshiva in Lida, Yitzchak Yaakov Rhinus, uh, the yeshiva's Tervedas of Lida, of Rhinus, goes with the yeshiva in exile. By this time his son um, was was kind of taking over the yeshiva. Rhinus was elderly and sick. The Major Te'ila Yerub Shalema Paliachik, however you pronounce his last name, he um, was a, the main Rebbe in the yeshiva. And in 1915, a year into World War I, Rav Rhinus dies. The yeshiva goes into exile and falls apart. The, the yeshiva was not able to really rebuild afterwards. And, 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 and that was basically the end of the Lida yeshiva. And the same thing happened with the kibbutz of Panovich. Rabbi Itzelaponovizer was forced into exile, away from his town, away from his community. He was principally the rabbi of the community of Ponovizer, and he goes into exile 
as well, and he takes the kibbutz. He had, wasn't really a yeshiva, it was a kibbutz, a group of senior Talmidim of, of Lithuanian yeshivas, and who were geniuses, who were uh, iluyim, and they came to Panovich to, to learn, and and he um, and he uh, he 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 went into exile with them, and they ended up near Moscow. Actually, they were deep into Russia. They were actually outside of the Pale of Settlement, and they he went with them there, and they, that's where they that's where they ended up. Uh, and but that that didn't last very long. Um, the the Panovich kibbutz near Moscow fell apart. And Rav Itzala, at the end of the war, came back to Panovich, a broken man, elderly, sick. He died shortly after World War I in 1919, buried in Panovich. And the, the Panovich Rav, the famous Panovich Rav, Yosef Shlemek took over as the rabbi in Panovich. Incidentally, on our trips, when we go to Lithuania, sometimes we don't make it all the way up to the north of the country, to Panovich. And people might be disappointed that they won't get to go to Rav Itzala Panovich's grave to Davin to hear the story about Rabitzala. So as it happens, the Soviets took care of that problem because the Soviets destroyed the Beis Akvaris, the cemetery, the Jewish cemetery in Panovich. And the last Jews of Panovich, under Soviet rule, they transferred in the 1970s, I believe, they transferred Rabitzala Panovich's kever to Vilna. And has actually been reburied in Vilna. He's right behind Reb Chaim Grzegensky's kever. So you go to the New Jewish Cemetery in Vilna, and you also get a little bit of Panovish. So the yeshivas, that's what's happening to most yeshivas. And and the yeshivas that do sustain themselves, it's by miracles. It's not simple at all to be able to fund these uh, these yeshivas. At the time, Reblaze Yudel Finkel of the Mir Yeshiva, he's out in Poltava, he's far from the sources of funding. What was the sources of funding before World War One? the wealthy Jews of Russia. There was no such thing as going to America before World War I. That's an interwar uh, phenomena, that the Russia yeshiva are go to America. It didn't happen. So, so occasionally there was fundraising in Western Europe. They did send letters to America. There was money coming in from there, but principally it was local. There was wealthy Jews in Russia, mainly in the big cities like St. Petersburg, Kiev, Moscow, um, a little bit Odessa. That was... Usually, we're not the funding yeshivas type of people there, but um, but that that's where the main uh, sources came from. And now, with the war going on, they're cut off from uh, most of their funding. And Rabbi Yehuda Finkel described he actually writes this in his sefer that he would um, he was he would go on trains in the middle of the war, crossing battlefields, basically and try to meet with people to give them loans or small donations to be able to keep the yeshiva running, literally to keep them from starving, just to be able to keep the yeshiva guys, to give them a slice of bread to eat. He's talking about extremely challenging conditions, dire conditions, and they're, they're, not, they're not looking for buildings to build, they're not looking for luxuries for their yeshiva, they're looking literally to save them from starvation. That's the situation that they're in. Uh, there's a story also he, uh, that he was uh, on a train and and it was during it was after the Russian Revolution, which hopefully we'll get to. And there was Ukrainian uh, mobsters who were looking to beat up Jews, and he definitely looked uh, noticeably Jewish. And he said he hired, hid under a pile of suitcases 
for a few hours in the middle of a train car in a, in a corner somewhere to be able to hide so that he, he can get to his destination and where someone was supposed to be giving him some money to keep the yeshiva going. And he describes it in the introduction to his Sefer by saying how much Mesiris Nefesh, how much dedication was needed to keep the Mir Yeshiva going and how many miracles they sustained to keep the Mir Yeshiva going. It's ironic because whenever anyone talks about Mir Yeshiva miracles during the war, they always refer to World War II and how the miracle of getting the visas, the Sugihara visas, and getting to Shanghai and, and Japan and then Shanghai, which is, which is of course, great miracles and a great story. And of course, we'll definitely have to get around to it in a whole series. But when Rablazi Yudel Finkel talks about it in, in the introduction to his Sefer, from one line to the next, he says, and we sustained miracles in both world war, world, world wars. Well, we went to Poltava in the First World War, and we ended up in Shanghai in the Second World War. He wasn't with them in Shanghai. He made it to Israel in the Second World War. But, um, but he, he puts it onto the same category that, you know, you can't uh, ignore how the Mir Yeshiva survived even though it was very small, so 40, 50, maybe 60 at its peak, but uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot to keep it going. Um, one of the interesting exceptions to this rule of shrinking yeshivas is the amazing work that's going on during the war under, under the conditions of Navardak. Rabbi Yosef Yezel Horowitz, uh, the altar of Navardak, who had endless energy, we just uh, commemorated his 100th yard site, uh, centennial of the uh, of the passing of the altar of Navardic, which is definitely a personality that there's a lot to say about and the whole Navardic movement and what it was all about. It's a fascinating story and hopefully we'll get to that too one day. Similarly, endless, endless. Modern Jewish history is endless and we'll have to get to all these great stories. But in any, either way, but the altar of Navardic he, he, in 1896, he starts the yeshiva in Navardik, today Novogrudok in Belarus. We go to Novogrudok on our tours. We go there and, uh, and everyone expects to see the Navardik yeshiva. You know, it's not far from, from Mir, from Radin, from, it's in the middle of, middle of Belarus. And it's a fairly large town relative to, to the region. And, and, um, and there's no yeshiva there because the yeshiva left during World War One and never came back. And there's no remnant of the yeshiva building. There's no, there's no memory of it. So you just go there and we talk about it because we're in Navardic, but there's nothing to actually see as far as the yeshiva is concerned. There's other stuff to see there, and there's a great World War Two story there. And and just come on the tour, and I'll tell you all about it. But that's that's the veering off the topic. But the Navardic yeshiva leaves south for Hummel. Hummel or Gummel, a lot of towns and cities in Russia, they had a, a they, they sometimes appear with an H and sometimes with a G, um, like Grudna is also Harudna, right? You go to the Grudna Cemetery, where I go with groups, and Reb Shimon Shkup of Grudna is buried there, and the Yisoyed Vesherish HaAvayda, Reb Alexander Ziskind of Harudna is buried there. And I asked the group, why are the two of them buried in the same cemetery if they came from two different places? And the answer is, that is the same exact place. The Russian language does not have an H, so it's used as a G or a Ch um, instead of the H. So the same thing is, is as far as Hummel. It's either Hummel or Gummel. Rav Dessler spent some time in Hummel. Rav Yashiv, Rav Yashiv actually grew up in Hummel. His father was the Hummel Rav. He used to be the Rav in Shavel, and then he was later the Rav in Hummel. 
And um, Reb Dessler, when he was in Hummel, there was a lot of Chabad Hasidim there. He learned with a a, a Chabad Chassid that influenced him. And a lot of the Shmuzin of Reb Dessler and Panavish incorporated um, the Tanya without without him quoting it because the Panavish Rav said it's better not to quote it even if you want to say it. But either way, that was Hummel. So the Navardic ends up in Hummel. And and then later moves to Kiev, and he actually opens the yeshiva in Kiev, the capital of the Ukraine, a major city, the Navardic yeshiva. Now, the, the ultimate Navardic's philosophy was to always open more yeshivas, to expand the network, and at its peak in the interwar period it had, after the, the altar had already passed away, he, there was over 40 yeshivas in the Navardic uh, network. Many of them, and most of them actually were very small, but even in the interwar period, there were four major yeshivas of Navardic. So here, we're during World War One, and the altar of Navardic doesn't stop. He says, it doesn't matter that a war is going on, it doesn't matter that there's no money. Our job is to spread Tyra, to spread the Muslim of Navardic, and we're going to continue opening new yeshivas during World War One. and he does it. And it's an incredible operation, it's an incredible enterprise, and eventually they all leave Russia, they jump the border, he takes young kids, teenagers, they jump the border into Poland after World War One, but that's for the post World War One story. And but not him; it's already his son-in-law, Rav Yafin. He's he already is gone. By the way, why, how does he die? He dies right after World War One because he's running the yeshiva in Kiev, and there's a typhus epidemic, and he takes care of his students like a father takes care of the son, and he goes from student to student into their beds, into their sick beds, and gets the medicine and takes care of them and nurses them back to health. And they tell him, you have to be careful, you're going to get sick. And he does, and he ignores the advice, and he gets sick. Because he said, I can't, uh, I can't uh, stop taking care of my Talmidim. This is my job, this is my position as a Rebbe, as a dedicated father to the Talmidim. And that's what he does, and he doesn't stop. And he eventually succumbs to the illness, and he dies in Kiev. He actually was buried in the cemetery in Kiev. And when the Soviets uh, were out to destroy that cemetery in the 1960s, they, in a, in a crazy operation, they smuggled his body out of Kiev in like a backpack. It was like a really weird story. And his, his prized Talmud, who was Rashiva in France after the war, he survived the Holocaust. Or Gershon Liebman was involved in that operation. Or Pinchas Taitz, who was not a Navardic, he was a Slabotka, he was the rabbi in Elizabeth, he was also involved in that operation. And and they got the altar of Navardic out of Kiev, and they reburied him on Haram and Nuchis in Yerushalayim, in the, in the Chalkas Harabanim, the main section. You know, a lot of people go to Haram and Nuchis, and they dive in by Ramesha Feinstein, and the Belzareva, and the Mira Shashiva, and they don't even realize that the altar of Navardic, who's like a gener- two generations before them, is also buried right there on Har HaManuchis. So the Navardic is expanding while everyone else is is contracting. Uh, one of the best uh, um, best stories, and it's also a sad story, uh, of, of, of a struggle for survival of a yeshiva is the Radin yeshiva. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim, who's at the helm of the Radin yeshiva, at the beginning of the war, he, he casts a Geiril Hagra, which is, you know, not a commonly used uh, mechanism. And he has a he comes a pasuk from a recent parsha we just had, we just read, and in, that that Yaakov Avinu, when he wants his his war strategy against Esav, is that he splits his family into two. 
Vahaya hamachne hanishar lefleita, and the second camp is going to be able to survive. If you split them into two, then you guarantee the survival of at least one of them. And that's what the Chavetz Chaim, he, this is what was the answer that was given by this very special lottery attributed to the Vilna Gain, used in times of distress and crisis, but only if you know what you're doing, which the Chavetz Chaim obviously did. And he splits the yeshiva. He leaves a portion of the yeshiva in Radin, together with the senior Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Moshe Landinsky. And he takes the rest of the yeshiva along with him into exile. And along with him means with Rabbi Naftali Trupp, the Rosh Yeshiva, and Rabbi Chanan Wasserman, his prize Talmud, who joins up with them, and other staff of the yeshiva, mainly his son-in-law, Rabbi Hirsch Levinson, who was the administrator, and the one who really ran the show in Raden, a very incredible uh, person, a lot to say about if we ever talk about Raden, and and uh, they end up and they end up in stop after stop in this exile. They go first to Shumiatz, a town, you know, a few hundred miles east of Raden, and they try to set up shop there. And when things don't look good there, the yeshiva splits again. And this time he puts Reb Naftali Trupp at the head of one faction, and he himself and Reb Hirsch Levinson take the other faction, and they go further into Russia to Shmilovitz. By the way, the Chavetz Chaim during the time of World War I doesn't sleep on a bed because he feels like there are so many homeless Jews out there and refugees and people who have nowhere to sleep and he wants to feel their pain. And he is like, like he always was, like the father of the Jewish people. He literally wants to physically feel their pain and he wouldn't sleep on a regular bed um, throughout the years of World War I. Shmilovitz is not safe either at some point. And they go further. They go all the way into Russia, deep into Russia, past Babroisk, past crossing again, out of the Pale of Settlement, all the way to another town that nobody ever heard of called Snufsk. And he remains there, even after World War I, into the early 20s. And he does not go back to Raden right away. In 1920, 1920 tragedy hits the yeshiva. We're talking about northeastern Russia over here. And bitter cold winter, there are boys sick with pneumonia, and Reb Hirsch Levinson, who also is the main one who carries the yeshiva on his shoulders as the son-in-law of, his, of, of the Chavetz Chaim, and Reb Hirsch gives his warm winter coat to a boy suffering from pneumonia. And of course, walking around without a winter coat in that type of weather, and when we go there in the, in the, in the when we go there with the trips in the winter, and I was just there last week, not in Russia, but you know, I'll be there soon, in, in Poland, which is a similar area, it, it's it's bitter cold. It's so freezing. And just to imagine someone walking around without a winter coat because he gave it away to someone who was sick, it's like, uh, it's almost unfathomable. And of course, Robert Levinson comes down with pneumonia. He does not recover, and he dies uh, in Snufsk. When we go to Radin on trips, and we go to the cemetery, and we dive by the Chavetz Chaim, and Ramesh Landinsky, and Naftali Trupp, and the guys ask me, where's Reb Hirsch? And I'm telling Reb Hirsch is out in Snufsk, and I highly doubt that anyone has ever visited his kever, Reb Hirsch Levinson, the great leader of the Radin Yeshiva. And in fact, the Chavetz Chaim was upset at him. The Chavetz Chaim said to him, you should not have given away your coat. Look, you got sick, because you 
are the one who carries the yeshiva on his shoulder, on your shoulders. So you have a responsibility to the community. And this is, if you know about the Chavetz Chaim, this is the Chavetz Chaim's essence, responsibility to the klal, to the Jewish people, not just living for yourself. So he said, even chesed you can't just do for yourself. You can't just think that you have to help this specific boy because you have the whole yeshiva as your responsibility. And therefore you have to watch over your health even extra, and you should not have given away your coat. And he was upset at him. He felt he was responsible for his own um, illness and then eventual demise. And then he said something even more wild when his daughter was sitting Shiva, his daughter Saru was sitting Shiva for her husband, Rav Hirsch. He said to his daughter Saru, it was an amazing thing to say to a spouse, he said, Sarala, I miss Rav Hirsch more than you do. And the Chavetz Chaim felt like he wouldn't be able to go on. How can he run Radin? How can he manage it without Reb Hirsch? Reb Hirsch was the bulwark of strength, of running the yeshiva, of taking care of everything, energetic, dynamic. And the Chavetz Chaim didn't know how he was going to move on. And he actually didn't move on for a while. But eventually, with the communism, it just got too hard. So he makes it back to Radin, but we'll save that for the post-World War I uh, episode. So we have... Amazing stories here of yeshivas in exile, and of course there's more to expand on it, but I want to move uh, off over to the next topic. Um, and so we have all this going on, and there's developments in the war. We focused on a very, very specific and small story here, the Litvish yeshivas in exile, which is a, a tiny percentage of the Jewish people in 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 Europe at the time, or even in Eastern Europe, or even in the Russian Empire at the time, you know, it was just to, to, to get a little bit of a feel for the situation. If we go back to the macro view of what's going on, there's a lot of developments in the war as the war progresses into its second, third, and fourth year. There's the collapse of the Eastern Front, which leads to the Russian Revolution. The Tsar, Tsar Nikolai II, he takes personal command of the troops on the front, he is not able to stop the German advance. The Russian troops are not well fed and well armed. The Russian economy is doing bad. And there's revolutionary ferment in the air. People are very not happy with the war in Russia. And it comes to a point where it's not even clear if he'll have the army's support in the case of revolution, which is actually what happened is that uh, enlisted soldiers and drafted soldiers sometimes turned their guns on their own officers, which which means, you know, full mutiny, not full mutiny, but they're an element of mutiny in the army. And there's two, um, two revolutions in February and October. And I just want to take a, a step back and take a look at, at, uh, at really as, at, at, at the big picture of this stage um, of the war. Let's focus on the year 1917. The year 1917 is the really the third, the fourth year of the war. I mean, it starts in the third year. The, the, the war, the war starts in August of 1914. So this is already, you know, 15, 16, 17. It's the third and fourth year of the of the war, and three very significant events as far as the Jewish people are concerned. Uh, um, also in general, but we're going to focus on the story of the Jewish people here. Um, number one is the Russian Revolution. There's actually two revolutions. The first revolution is in February, and that's a general revolution. Alexander Kerensky sets up a provisional government which uh, provides emancipation for the Jews. It's the first time, they're the last country in the world 
that the Jews did not have emancipation. Everywhere in Europe they had received emancipation already. They received equal rights. They even received political rights. And Russia, the Russian Empire, where the bulk of the Jewish people, especially of Europe, lived, had not yet received it. And now, freedom, provisional government, the revolution was successful, the Tsar abdicates, and the, the hated Tsar in the house of Romanov uh, falls apart. Eventually, in the, after the Second Revolution, they're even arrested and killed. That's another story. And, and the Russian Revolution brings with it seemingly hope. Um, now, Kerensky and the provisional government promised the Russian people that they would end the war, and they did not end the war. They continued fighting Germany, and that's what angered the Russian people and eventually led to the Bolshevik Revolution uh, of, um, of uh, November that year, November 7th. It's, it's, it's called the October Revolution, but it took place in November. Why did it take place in November if it was the October Revolution? Because the Russian Empire, in their great wisdom, still used the Julian calendar. Right? The Julian calendar was the old uh, original calendar used, Julian being the, uh, one of the Roman emperors of that time when the ca- calendar was formulated. In the 16th century, a scientific discovery was made that they realized that the measurements that they used back when Julian was alive was 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 not correct, and they were off by the solar year by a few minutes, and it added up. So they had to skip, I think, I guess I should have looked this up, uh, I think 11 days in, in, in one, of the, one of the years of the early 1500s, 1510, 1515, something like that, 1516. They skipped a few days. Those days simply don't exist. Everyone in Europe went to sleep one day uh, on one date, and they woke up, and the next morning, it was 10 days later. And that, because the Pope who took care of it in, in Rome, his name was Pope Gregory. So the calendar, that the new calendar, which is 10 days off, was called the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar we use till today. Now, the interesting thing was that even though the Pope said, uh, I'm sorry, not the, it was Pope, it was Pope, Pope Gregory. Uh, the, the Pope said that everyone has to use the new calendar because it's scientifically more correct. Ironically, it's the uh, Pope pushing science here. Um, but this is after the Protestant Reformation and the Anglican Church, for instance, in the British Empire, they said, we don't care about the Pope and we do not follow the Pope's rulings. And the British Empire, the massive, great, progressive huge British empire for another couple of hundred years till the 1700s continues to use the old Julian calendar, which was wrong and accurate. And now you have a con- countries that are, some are using one calendar, some are using another. It got kind of confusing. And eventually England switched. But in Russia, they didn't switch. The Tsar liked the old calendar. The Russian Orthodox Church definitely doesn't have to listen to the, to the Pope. And he keeps the Julian calendar um, that's why if you ever research Jewish history and Jews, Jewish life in the Russian Empire, the dates are very confusing because it's all the dates are used according to the Julian calendar and you have to convert it to Gregorian. So that long background was to explain why the October Revolution really took place in November, November 7th. So the Russian Revolution is, is event number one that's extremely significant, both in general for the world and specifically for Russia, and even more specifically for the Jewish people, which we'll, we'll speak about. The second significant event, I'm going to elaborate on all, all three of them, but first I want to give a, an overview. The second significant event that takes place 
is the U.S. entry into the war. That takes place in between the two revolutions, right? The Russian Revolution was in February, November. The U.S. declares war on April 6th against Germany. They do not declare war against all the central powers. They declare war on Austria-Hungary like a year later, basically. And they never declare war on Bulgaria or the Ottoman Empire. Interestingly enough, that's... You know, go figure with the U.S. Congress, what their uh, calculations are about who they declare war on, who they don't. But they declare war on Germany on April 6th, and that brings them into the war, and there's all kinds of reasons for it. The the U.S. followed a very rigid isolationist policy. They did not want to get involved in the war, and they very strongly resisted any uh, pull to get into the war. But a few events led to it, the Zimmerman telegram and Mexico and also unrestrained, uh, unrestricted um, uh, attacks on merchant shipping, which very much angered the U.S., that the, the uh, German Navy was attacking U.S. shipping, and a couple of other factors got involved that eventually brought them into the war. So, I mean, the troops start reaching France only towards the end of the year, and they only get to the battlefields. American soldiers only get to the battlefields of World War I really in 1918, and they play a decisive role in the last year of the war. But the war is declared. So now America's in the picture. The United States is in the picture. It does change things. It does make uh, Ludendorff and uh, Hindenburg nervous on the Western Front. The German generals are running the war. Um, You know, it means that they have a push to wrap up the Eastern Front as fast as possible to get their focus on the West because they know that fresh... um, U.S. soldiers are coming. They also know that the U.S. industrial output is going to start arriving on the continent. So it does change factors. And I'm going to speak about a little bit about how that changes the Jewish picture, because now the Jewish community in the United States is galvanized, and that really changes the dynamic of the relationship between the American Jewish community, which are, recent, for the most part, recent immigrants to their brethren back home um, in Europe, which is, which is a, a great story to tell, and, and, and we'll get to that also. The third major event, which is specifically for the Jewish people um, at the time, is the Balfour Declaration, also takes place in 1917, at the same, at the same time as, um, as, as the Russian Revolution. It's, it's so ironic, and, you know, whoever writes the script up there, you know, it's unbelievable how November 7th, the Bolshevik Revolution which is eventually going to destroy Jewish life in Russia. Jewish life in the Russian Empire was the center of Jewish life. In Ruchnius, in Gashmius, it was the center of yeshivas and Hasidus, the Russian Empire, that's where five million Jews lived before the World War I. And it's about to be destroyed, the Bolshevik Revolution. It starts on November 7th, and of course it leads to civil war. It only gets resolved in 1923, the same week. November 2nd, and it hits the media on November 9th. It's literally the same week. The Balfour Declaration is declared. And whether, uh, you know, the political affiliation is irrelevant here, and, 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 and uh, you know, whether a person is pro-Zionist or anti-Zionist is irrelevant, but at the end of the day, the center of Jewish life eventually, you know, a long uh, course of events that brought to it, but eventually it comes to Eretz Yisrael. And today, you know, it's some, you know, either the United States or Eretz Yisrael, but it's indisputable that it's a major sor- major center of Torah life and Hasidus and yeshivas and 
And, uh, you know, so this is the beginning of it. Whether, again, I'm not getting involved in politics or, or ro- romantic uh, nationalism. That's not my point to talk about the, the uh, Balfour Declaration. I'm making just a, a, an irony of history about how as Russian, the beginning of the end of, of, of uh, Russian jury with the Bolshevik Revolution is the same, corresponds to the same week that the Balfour Declaration is declared. Now, what's the Balfour Declaration? Why is it declared then? Why is it called Balfour? Who is Lord Balfour? Who does he send this declaration to, right? He's sending it to the Jewish people. Who represents the Jewish people? And does he send it to the Chavetz Chaim? Does he send it to, to Chaim Weizmann, the head of the Tel Havdil, to the, to the head of the Zionist movement? Does he send it to rich Jews in America? Who represents the Jewish people? So he sends it to Lord Rothschild, right? So Rothschild represents the Jewish people. So that's also a good story. Why does he represent the Jewish people? And then the context of the declaration that there would be a national home in Palestine. Why is it said then? Why is it given then? Is that related to the fact, and of course it is, to the fact that England is at war with the Ottoman Empire in World War I? And as November leads into December... Uh, General Edmund Allenby enters the holy city of Jerusalem on December 11th on foot through Shariafo to show respect to the holy city. He dismounts his horse and he says, we go into the holy city. He's a religious Christian, of course, and on foot. And England now is in possession of Palestine and the Ottoman Empire is out the uh, Australian cavalry charge, and Australia, of course, is part of the British Empire, on Beersheba, which was a battle of World War One in Beersheba, believe it or not. You know, if anyone is familiar with Yerushalayim uh, geography, and you're familiar with a place in Yerushalayim called the Tachana Merkazit, the central bus station. So behind the central bus station, in a very actually quiet block, away from all the hustle and bustle, there is a monument built by the British army dedicated to the soldiers who lost their lives in the Battle of Jerusalem. And it says the regiment and the, the battalion that they're in, and it says a few of their names, an interesting monument that people pass by every day and don't even notice what's there. But it's the British conquering Yerushalayim. Also, again, another Yerushalayim landmark, you know, and, uh, and I see it quite often now that I'm, I'm involved at the university, but also anyone who's been to Hadassah and Haratzofim and Mount Scopus on the way to Hadassah or to Hebrew University, right outside of French Hill, you pass by a British military cemetery. And it's hundreds, you know, quite a large cemetery, a British military cemetery, well-maintained. Why is it well-maintained? Because the Israeli government is not in charge. The British government and the British military has a budget since they fought wars and battles everywhere in the world. So the British government has a budget for cemeteries abroad. And they literally have cemeteries in every country in the world, military cemeteries, and there's a budget to maintain them, to mow the lawn, to keep everything clean. And there's crosses there, of course. They're all Christian. And there's a, 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 a major, I forgot his name, a British major, a high-ranking officer who was killed um, at some point in the Battle of, of Palestine or, or Yerushalayim. And he's buried there, and it's, it's a whole... A battlefield cemetery. So there's another another uh, reference to the British uh, takeover of Yerushalayim at the time, and that has major ramifications. Both the Balfour Declaration 
and the British conquering Palestine, which both take place in the closing months of 1917, have major long-lasting ramifications for the Jewish people. So if we take a look back at 1917, 1917 is a major turning point. It's a year that um, that has ripple effects that really reach the Jewish people till today, either through the Russian Revolution, a little bit less so because of the American involvement in the war, but also a major event, and of course through the Balfour Declaration and the ultimate British takeover of the land of Israel. So, just a little bit of a start. I'm going to have to elaborate on this in part four um, about those three topics, but just a little bit of a, a, a start on the Russian Revolution. That's definitely the main event uh, that happens. The re- revolution's effect on Jewish life in Russia. So there's the two states, there's two revolutions. The February Revolution brings a sweeping hope through the Jewish masses. It brings emancipation. They're free. They're free for the first time. Russian Jewry were suffered under the Tsar, and now the Tsar is gone, and they're given equal rights. They're equal citizens. They can vote in elections. They can live outside of the Pale of Settlement. Everything changed instantly. And there's political organizing and all the Jewish political parties that had been illegal and working underground and all these revolutionaries. And now they can finally come out and they start to organize. And along with that, the religious Jews organize. And in a little-known episode of political religious history, which is, I think, not so well-known, there's a new party that's formed called Achdus which is a great name, you know, could use a dose of that once in a while, to unify all religious Jews in the Russian Empire, mainly in the northern parts of the Russian Empire, also from the Ukraine, but um, it's mainly uh, Litvish, uh, um, uh, the main Hasidic rabbi involved is the Rebbe Rashab. He's pretty much the initiator of the project. He's one of the main movers and shakers of the project to have this political party called Achdus that's going to bring together religious Jewry of the former Russian Empire and have them represented at the upcoming elections for the provisional government of Alexander Kerensky and uh, where the Jews now have equal voting rights. So the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, the Chafetz Chaim, Reb Chaim Oizer Grzynski, Reb the Ars Sameach, Reb Chaim Brisker, and the list can go on and on and on and on and on. All the great leaders, and they actually got along. They got together, and they're able to create this. Uh, and in the, they have, we have, we have a letter, a letter from them that they call call out to all the Jewish communities in exile across Russia during the war. Um, it's still, the war is still raging. We're coming together in the party called Achtus, and they make a reference to the fact that Agudis Yisrael was kind of started already before World War One. They said it didn't exactly get off the ground because of the war. So now we have a new political party called Achtus. And I want to point out, some of the people on the list I've mentioned were not involved in a good Yisrael and wouldn't be involved in a good Yisrael. But yet, in this party called Achtus, they were involved. So that's also an interesting um, uh, um, uh, footnote to Jewish history. Is what, what if? What would have happened had, had there not been a Bolshevik revolution? What would the Achtus political party have looked like and how would it have uh, turned out, which is uh, a fascinating what if to speculate. And I leave it, leave it to the speculators because historians are not good at speculating. 
because this party never really worked out. Um, not because of not because of lack of achdus, there was achdus, but because of the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks uh, they 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 made the second revolution, and of course they knock out all form of elections and democracy. They fall into, the whole country falls into civil war between the Red Russians, which are the Bolsheviks, and the White Russians, which are the ones still loyal to the Tsar. And that and that eventually leads to the demise and the destruction of Jewish life in many ways. Uh, first, the actual civil war itself, and the pogroms that it brought with it, and the destruction, the physical destruction, and then afterwards, when the Bolsheviks solidify their control, there's an active uh, destruction of Jewish religious, cultural, and political life. Um, so, so uh, the, you know, the, the one of the reasons, like I said, that the Bolsheviks uh, were able to make the Second Revolution is because the Russian people wanted the end of the war, and that's what Lenin brings, Vladimir. Lenin, he when he when he succeeds at the revolution, the first thing he does is end the war. The Eastern Front is finished. He concedes to the Germans whatever they want, and he gives up huge swaths of the former Russian Empire, massive pieces of territory, and he signs the treaty, and it's called the Treaty of Brest-Litvosk, and and that ends World War One on the Eastern Front. Ironically, Brest-Litvosk is simply the Russian. Uh, name of the town of Brisk. So the end of World War One takes place in Brisk. So Brisk has another claim to fame that they ended World War One on the Eastern Front. The Treaty of Brest-Litvosk is actually signed and named for Brisk. So World War One ends. The Germans are happy because they can put all of their troops now on the Western Front to meet the ar- new arriving Americans, and we'll take it from here in Part Four next time. So this was Yehuda Geber with. Jewish History Soundbites, and you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.